boys and ghouls, and welcome to a very special episode dedicated to that masterpiece of meta that asks and answers, what's your favorite scary movie? Join Marshall and Cat as they take a look at 1996's Scream and all that it gave us, including two sequels and then another sequel. So, pop some popcorn, take the phone off the hook, and avoid sharp objects as we present our 28th episode, I Scream, You Scream. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill you. Undead. So you ever Some talk to a corpse? Satan is our pal. It's boring. Throw the third switch! Look! The third switch! Give my creation! find it i don't know who would be out to uh turn west craven into a lover mexican coke other than himself he's such a teddy bear well he'll come up a little later in the meantime what have you been up to horror well, gab wise well marshall i went on a vacation with my boyfriend alec who we've, i've mentioned on the podcast before if you remember back in october i had a halloween album that I was gonna give away and our listener Melissa got one and anyway Alec was responsible mainly for that album like he's the you know brains in the music and he's so sure. I mean I sang but he he does everything else he's incredible so you and the aforementioned Alec yeah so Alec and I went to go visit with his sister who lives on an island off the coast of South Carolina right near Charleston Mm. The last time I visited Charleston, I took a ghost and graveyard tour that was really fun and has stuck with me ever since. Is that the only city you've taken a ghost and graveyard tour in? Yes. I took one in New Orleans. Ooh, I bet that might be even better. It was actually called a voodoo tour. Cool. But at the end of the day, it was mostly a graveyard tour. Charleston is very haunted and has a lot of history and therefore has a lot of different kinds of tours. They also had a pirate and brothel tour. They had a whole lot of different stuff. I like we- just, just glaze by... Charleston's very haunted. It is. As, as if it was like, they've got a lot of bed and breakfasts. Like, it was this quantifiable level you, of haunted. Have we met? <laughs> um, so, Charleston's full of that kind of stuff. And I told Alec, and I was like, I'd love to visit just something spooky. A graveyard, maybe, in the daytime. Because when we went before, it was at night. And, uh, really? yeah, the tours were at night. I told his family, you know, I was like, I'd love to go see a little bit of Charleston. You know, whatever, no big deal. This is the family vacation. We'll just all hang you, out. You don't and- want to take over right. their family vacation with your creepiness. Yeah. But they thankfully love me very much and are so sweet. And one morning, we get a knock on the door from his sister saying, we're not going to the beach today. We're going to a graveyard or two. Get dressed. So I go, it was like Christmas morning I'll put on me. my graveyard shorts. Serious. And I did. It was a beautiful way to be woken up you know me so alex's sister katie took us around to a couple of her favorite like breakfast place she likes and a coffee place and then the graveyarding started so the first thing we did is pop by the old charleston city jail which could not look more haunted did they at one time have a gallows 
Probably. But we went to a place called the Unitarian Church in Charleston, established 1772. It's still in operation. The graveyard next to it is what's more important, which is this incredibly old, overgrown, I'm talking vines, Spanish moss, mm. leaning tombstones, the works. Like crooked teeth. Yes. Tucked right in next to this church. There was even like a corner of the graveyard that had like all these broken pieces of tombstones in it. I took a picture. It was like a graveyard, graveyard. I can't express how magical. And it was hot, muggy, very old Southern Gothic. Powerful. Yeah, it was. Then per a suggestion from Alex's brother-in-law, who's a bit of a historian, he said, why don't you take him over to Magnolia Cemetery? It's a 92-acre cemetery that has been there for a really long time. It's, again, a lot of hanging Spanish moss. Was there a wrought iron fence at any of these? So many wrought iron fences. Many of the wrought iron fences just, like, curling down, really rusted over, just so magical. I... I don't have really any good ghost stories about the experiences because we were visiting them during the day. There was nothing so to clarify, spooky that happened. A couple cemeteries visited, no actual ghost scene. No. Although, okay. there was a... Because cr- you know what? Otherwise, you'd be bearing the lead. Yes. There was a crypt that I peeked into that I probably maybe showed you a picture of. Or it looked like a shaped like a pyramid. You sent really, me that, really yeah. old and gross, right? Inside, like, they have these familial crypts that are only built for a couple of bodies, but that stand alone. And mm-hmm. usually there's some kind of a gate that you can at least peek inside of. And they're always locked because they don't want people coming in and doing whatever. But I could peek through. And for one, it smelled dank in there. Just not good. Very sour, kind of like a decomposing body. But also, there was a statue inside that was like of an angel or something that had fallen over and split right at the neck. So it was so headless. Head was just off. The head was just sitting off to the side. It, that was great. Uh, would you say the head was found missing or the head was not found at all? I would say the head was right next to the body. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, it was just such a magical experience, and there were some really unique graves that, you know, I saw a grave for a nine-month-old baby that was Mm -hmm. shaped like a bassinet with a baby in it. It was the craziest thing. I just, you know, I don't need to explain it to you. You understand. I just, it's graveyards and cemeteries are just very romantic and peaceful to me, and I could sit in them all day. You know, uh, every uh, podcast episode is somebody's first podcast episode. And uh, if you've gotten this far, folks, you understand Kat loves herself a good graveyard. She sure does. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Uh, Nothing horrific, except that I gave blood. (gasps) Good for you. Doesn't sound spooky. So let me phrase it like this. I gave blood. (laughs) And it's mostly a um, kind of a non-event once you've done it a couple times. Sure. Yeah, take it. I'm fine. I think I've done it three or four times, and every time it was kind of an event. Except, you know, usually the um, the gathering for the blood is down outside of your vision, and you can just sort of see some of it redder than you'd think. Yeah. Darker red than you'd yeah. think. Yeah. And you're like, is that the tubing or is And you can me? feel how warm it is on your arm, because usually they tape the um, tubing to your arm so that the needle doesn't wiggle in your arm. I just remember feeling the warmth of the blood going through the tube, and I'm like, that heat is my life's blood blood blood. draining from my body. And I just volunteered for this. Yeah. Yeah. But then after getting the needle, but before getting my cookies, they were kind of finishing up with me, and there was just sort of like like a basket of like the necessary items to use on me. 
and they had a pink bandage in there. And I was like, can I get a more masculine color <laughs> Hoping for red. Got blue. Okay. So that, All was, right. that was good. And then while um, prepping me for discharge, they took my life's blood, the bag of it, and like set it on my tummy for a moment. Just as like somewhere to put it. And I guess I wasn't prepared for just how full the bag was. Yeah. I always thought they built those bags with a little slack in them. It was like bulging at the sides with my blood. <sighs> You know, did it freak you out at all? Like, did it actually make you feel a little woozy, or were you just fine? In, with in the it? sense that it looked like it could pop, like an engorged oh, tick. Can you imagine? Just like, here's your blood, buddy. Yeah. Look familiar? Yipes. So there you are. Good for you, though. I'm very proud of you. Where'd you do that? A work thing? At work. Good for you. Do you get lightheaded? Because I, I always don't do. I think so. I don't drink. Yeah. So sometimes uh, giving blood is my only time outside of illness to be out of it. <laughs> Do you so, mean that as like a, it's a treat? It's a uncommon experience. Sure. For me. I'll tell you what. So I don't always drive immediately afterwards. Yeah. But I have gone and watched an IMAX movie. I saw 300. Sounds trippy, Marshall. While like a, a pint low. Little woozy. <laughs> you are adorable. So here we go. That That is adorable. Oh, yeah. and they, they tell you to eat. So I got like a, like a big old turkey leg. Ooh. And just chowed down on it. And I'm like, doctor's orders. Rawr, rawr, rawr. <laughs> That is very silly. Yeah. You're a very silly man. Hello? Hello? Who is this? If you tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Do you like scary movies? What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act who's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. Don't answer the phone. <laughs> Don't open the door. Don't try to hide. You're not scared, are you? Scream. Rated R. Hey, everybody. This episode is about Scream and Scream 2, 3, and 4. Hey, Marshall. Yes? Oh, it's your favorite scary movie. Oh, we've talked about this. It's all the right, Lost Boys. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just watched the other night, by the way. I haven't watched it in a while, and I'd like to make it a topic at some point. I would die to make it a topic. We could do it next month because it's still summertime. Hey, everybody. Lost Boys next month. <laughs> I don't think we've ever worked that out on mic. We never have. Sometimes it's like the mic turns off and you're like, I like invisible men. Yeah. Or something, you know. <laughs> Say your impression of me. Yes. I do not like invisible as, men. As soon as the microphone is off. You know what I think? I like revenge. Sure. But that's for the future. That is a new business. Yeah. <laughs> a new business is not till next month. That's right. But for the business now, the movie Scream. Yes. The first Scream was kind of a game changer. Horror movies were kind of in an ebb. It's not like all horror movies got great after no. Scream, but it kind of raised the bar for a while and said, we can do this now. Yeah. But like, we were just kind of hanging out with like Wishmaster. Wishmaster, careful what you wish for. I'm hesitant to like bring up specific examples. Yeah. Because it doesn't make them bad. They just stand in stark contrast to Scream. Let's just put it that way. I guess that there was also just kind of like a level of quality that studios weren't putting into horror movies. I think there's the prevailing idea that it is easy to make a horror film. 
and therefore should be cheap. Yeah. I mean, there's sure. a lot of stuff going into it, but the lack of respect for the genre, and that continues today, and I think will probably continue forever. Well, I think I think respect comes and goes as box office dollars come and go. I don't know, though. I see what yeah. you're saying, but I okay. almost feel like regardless of how much money a horror movie might make, in general, horror films are never going to necessarily be respected. It'll be like, we can make a lot of money off this, but that doesn't mean I think it's art. Okay. Is the way I think a lot of people feel about it. I know that you're about 50 pounds overweight, but when I say hurry, please interpret that as move your fat tub of lard ass now! Could there be anybody, and when I say hotter, I don't mean attractiveness, it's movies, they're all hot. Yeah. But as far as career-wise, whom could be hotter than somebody from the cast of Friends? Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, Friends was an explosion. Absolutely. Tearing Huge. through the sky. Huge. At the time. And that young actors, you know, looking for their next big project could be then convinced to do a horror film. Yeah. For at least the next decade. Or would you say that's still going oh, on? Before that, it was just like, get the actress who hasn't popped yet, who's still willing to show her boobs. Yeah. Don't bother me. I'm on a TV show. Sure. Yeah. That was kind of the divide pre-Scream. I agree with you. Yes. And then post-Scream, I guess one of our first topics can be, it sort of marked the end of nudity for, for at least a little while in horror films. Sure. There's been a real decrease since then, and I realize you don't need it, but I kind of miss it. <laughs> it sure can be nice. I didn't hide that girl for her scream. I hide that girl for her tits. Well, then what are you worried about with those tits? Who's going to be watching her scream? Let's just both uh, share how we first came to see the movie Scream. It's probably pretty different. We've uh, got a bit of an age gap, two different perspectives. Yeah. I actually spent more time wondering about what your experience was than I did remembering my own unique. because I you just speculated on mine. <laughs> well, yes, because I don't remember seeing it for the first time. You were pretty young. I was pretty. I mean, I definitely didn't see it in theaters. I was twelve when the movie came out. Okay. And that I mean, was 1996. 1996. December 20th, 1996, the movie premiered. But I know that shortly after it came out on VHS, I must have seen it a bunch of times. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like Halloween well, for me in the sense that I saw it so much as soon as I possibly could that it's just been a part of my life. And I can't actually remember the world before Scream was a part of my life because I've seen the movie so many times. Okay. So, well, something I was wondering was as it entered your life. Yeah. Uh, you already had several years under your belt watching and loving the movie Halloween. Yes. And but, lots of other horror movies too. But specifically, specifically Halloween. Specifically Halloween. Which the first Scream uses as a big ol' influence. Uh, at first just talking about it. Then some real insiders can pick up references like go to the McKenzie house. Is mm -hmm. that the name? Kevin Williamson's favorite film is Halloween. Right? Yeah. And he doesn't hide it. And then for the last third of the movie, not only are they watching Halloween... Like, sitting around watching it, and we're watching them watch Halloween. And then, for a while in the movie, instead of having a score of its own, as people would sort of, like, creep through the house and tension would build... Halloween's on in the background. They would just play the music from Halloween and let that serve as the music for the scene. And then, not long after uh, Scream, came Halloween H2O, which was really... Oh. They brought back Halloween, which, at that point, had ebbed. Yeah. It, it sort of stopped off with he was no longer hunting... Lori, he was hunting her niece. Mm -hmm. And then people stopped caring. But then Scream came and gave it like this great shot in the arm. People sure. were like, yeah, Halloween. Let's go see that. 
Meanwhile, you were 12. I was 20 when it came out. I didn't see it in the theaters. And then one of my sister's friends brought it over who worked at a video store. So she had like an advanced copy. So I was watching an advanced copy and I got about a third of the way through it and then had to go out somewhere. How did you leave? (laughs) Didn't you know? I had a previous appointment. And that that was the summer that I was working in a graveyard. Yes. So... It just left me to, like, mow. I was mowing this graveyard, just thinking about all the different suspects, because that's something that, like, this movie's really good at. And kind of, um, I mean, not changed, and it certainly didn't do it first, but a lot of horror movies really let you know who their killer was. Most horror movies at that point, that's how you would sell it. Right. With who the killer is. You know, you've got your Michael Myers, you've got your Freddy Krueger, you got your Jason. For the one-offs, you would be like, here's this monster. They're named after Dr. Giggles. It's Dr. named Giggles. for the killer. Pretty rarely would it be a whodunit. You know, whodunits were more for mysteries. Yeah, that's and a good point. it left me to just wonder whodunit for that, like, month that it took between, like, this sneak preview that I saw uh-huh. half of. Apart from that, what was 20-Year-Old Marshall like? What was it about this Beardless. film that uh, appealed? Because I'll tell you, I for was, me... At the time, that summer, I was in between my second film program and my third. Right. So I was, uh, you know... A pretty voracious watcher of films. I was a voracious watcher of films at 12, 13, 14 when I was beginning to watch the movie when it came out on video, but I didn't, I wasn't a, I didn't have the understanding I have now of all the work that goes into it to piece apart like, oh, I like this director, I like these actors, I like, oh, here's what I I like the score. So for me, it was more like it referenced Halloween. Yeah. It was clever, hip and scary. Sure. These kids were in high school and way cooler than me. High school kids. I looked up to the strong female characters. I thought the guys were cute and scary. And like that for me, there was a lot of idolatry going on there. Who would you want to be your boyfriend at the time? Would have been uh, Matthew Lillard's character? Yeah, Stu. First one. Yeah. Out of the gate. It it was Stu. I like the funny guys. I do. I mean, don't get me wrong. He was uh, was pretty high energy. Billy was... um, yeah, in fact, I just I recently watched an interview with Matthew Lillard where he was he was saying uh, he's like I spit my way through that that entire performance. He was laughing about it. He's like I can't believe how ridiculous. But lucky, I, lucky Rose McGowan. Yeah, right. Just covered in spit. But I I loved it. I still love his performance. I I mean I had said I had a big crush on him. Better live her alone. <laughs> live her alone. <laughs> Ow, liver, liver. Scream was very popular. But let's say that there's people listening right now who have actually never seen Scream. Oh, that's I mean, not possible. It came out in 96. It's a lot of years. All that's right, that's all a lot right. of new horror fans to come up and then just sort of gloss over it. Point but, taken. So, how would you describe it? You're going to give it to old Long Windy? All right, I'll try. I'll, um, I'll keep you on task. <laughs> Scream follows... A young girl, Sydney Prescott, she's in high school, mm. who is dealing with the aftermath of her mother's rape and murder a year previous. Mm. And she begins receiving threatening phone calls following another few murders that have happened. And she the, becomes kind of the focus of this the, the killer's... The kicks off with a dual murder. Right. And then we meet this young lady. And then we meet Sydney. And, and it turns out all the murders seem to be related to her. Her mom's murder. Yeah. So it's very personal to her, and the movie just follows her struggle to stay alive as she's being attacked, and the people around her, you know, are being killed as well. All right. I guess that's about it, right? That was very clinical. 
And you, uh, you went right for the heart of the movie in your description as well. Okay. What you described is not really in any of the trailers, for example. When they're getting the people in the seats, it's, there's a killer, and here's a girl, and here's another girl, and here's her boyfriend. And they're all screaming. Because it's scream. Yeah. As it goes on, you get to know the internal goings-on of Nev Campbell's character, yeah. Sydney Prescott, about her past, recent past, with her mom. Who was murdered. How would you have done it? Um, something that was left off is that the killer, as well as the victims and survivors, are savvy to horror movies. Yes. That the killer has a fixation on horror movies, uh, who starts off his conversations with, what's your favorite scary movie? That became basically the tagline for the film. And that also separated Scream from other horror movies that had come before, because horror movies didn't often talk about other horror movies. Mm -hmm. And although Scream does have a heart, it also has a great sense of fun with playing with and against horror movie cliches mm -hmm. and tropes. Yes. Never, ever, ever under any circumstances say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. Oh! Marshall, mm. what is your opinion on the line... Don't you dare blame the movies, Sid. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. To be actually psychotic yeah. is a medical condition. Yes. Which I don't think we've even pinpointed yet. And it's still a debate. Are you born with it or does it come from your environment? They're still heavily studying it, yeah. Sure. I don't believe it does come from the movies. I don't think it comes from video games. Do you either. think there's any influence, though? Do you think that someone who might have certain tendencies might... So, somebody with a psychosis can fixate on a movie as easily as they can a politician or their neighbor's dog, mm -hmm. let's say, in the case of Son of Sam, or Catcher in the Rye. Yeah. And I'm just pulling from uh, different bits of actual cases where the killer had a fixation with yeah. something. So if somebody can pull murder out of Catcher in the Rye... They can probably more easily pull murder out of a horror movie. Sure. Or any movie. I gotta finish my letter to Jodie Foster. Uh, I look to the fairly re well, it's not recent anymore in, in terms of like the timeline of tragedies, but um, post Scream uh, was Columbine. Yeah. And that was two young killers just taking it out in the world. You've recently read up a lot about I have. Columbine. I know that when it happened and everyone's grasping at straws, one of the things that got blamed was the trailers for The Matrix. Uh, Marilyn Manson got in the hot seat, but because every kid was listening to Manson, yeah. it really muddied the waters. And I, I remember watching a news reporter and it was like, they were fans of Marilyn Manson, but if every kid who was a fan of Marilyn Manson committed murder, then they'd all, you know, yeah, they'd all be dead by now. I was a big but Marilyn Manson fan in high school. <laughs> they found like they are fans of the German band Rammstein and right. somehow Rammstein became the smoking gun Yeah, in that. And it was none of it. He was... In... I will take the helm on this. Cat is an expert on Columbine. Your <laughs> thoughts are... I recently read a book called Columbine that came out in 2009 by a man named Dave Cullen. He spent about the 10 years following Columbine gathering information, talking with police, attorneys, families, parents, sure. um, everybody who would talk to him. And students. after... after... America had basically moved on to other tragedies. Yeah. But the script about what happened has become ingrained, completely immovably ingrained. Despite certain facts that are in this book, people will always believe certain 
facts about what happened at Columbine that aren't actually facts. Like and were, some of it's really big like stuff. Like they were Nazis or that there was Things actually like that. a trench coat mafia. Romantic and unromantic ideas about Columbine will stay forever. But one of the biggest things that I think is fascinating is that everyone believes still to this day, if you asked someone on the street, hey, tell me basics about Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, they're going to tell you, oh, well, they were bullied. They were picked on. They had had enough. They were... Mm -hmm. reacting to this kind of treatment. They listened to Marilyn Manson and Rammstein and they had uh, trench coats and they were this trench coat mafia and they did this shooting and blah, blah, blah. When the reality is, um, I think semi-relevant to Scream or at least interestingly sort of relevant, which is quite often in violent episodes, there will be two people working together and usually there is a dominant party and one who is... Subservient? Yes. Or, yeah. Was that the word? Despite the fact that people think that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were both really hurt and ready to just lash out at all the people who had picked on him and blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Really, the situation is that Eric Harris was a textbook psychopath to the best of our knowledge. As you mentioned, there's still a lot of research going on. Did they cat scan his brain or anything? Or that was all after the fact, just behavioral? Behavioral psychology. And for instance... Both Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, who Dave Cullen identifies as really just a depressive, who on his own would probably have figured life out. But he had this person kind of controlling him and feeding him. his um, upset. But like, for example, both he and Dylan broke into a car or something. This was a year before Columbine. Rather than getting like a misdemeanor on their record or whatever, they had to go through a community service program. And the disparity between the kinds of things Eric would say and write in the program versus the stuff he was going home and typing in his computer and on message boards. He was very contritious and kind of crafting a display of empathy going, I didn't think about what it would feel like if I had gotten my car broken into and I'm so sorry to have done that to you versus going home and writing in his journal and writing on online message boards. Everybody should just die. Everybody's so stupid. And why shouldn't I be entitled to somebody else's property if they just leave it sitting on their car seat? Mm -hmm. Like just... Really manipulative, very charming. Textbook psychotic. Yep. All Whereas right. Dylan, not so much. Anyway, now when I really think about it, and you think about like Billy Loomis having, he has a motive, kind of. It's sort of. It's kind of revenge. But he doesn't but seem barely, to have. really. Barely. Yeah. So maybe that's just kind of a front. And really, he is textbook psychopath. And you watch Stu, who like is kind of gleeful about everything that's going on. He's obviously committed some murders yeah. so far. But. He becomes, you know, once things get really real, well, he breaks in, in, down. That he'd be getting in trouble. Right. In a, in a great scene when he's on the phone, he's bleeding to death. And he's on the phone with Nev Campbell, who's hiding. Yeah. And she's like, so why did you do it? And he's like, I'm too easily influenced. Yeah. I'm very susceptible. Yeah. And then he's like, my parents are going to be so mad at me. Uh-huh. Which is like so crazy. When he, yeah. Oh, he does it so well. Just going back to a time before the horror movies, back in the 20s, okay, maybe you can't really make much of a case of them being influenced by Nosferatu and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. Really. But there's the, the Leopold and Loeb case. Familiar? No. They went on to sort of influence prototypes of dual killers. Have you seen Rope? No. R Rope pulls from the Leopold and Loeb case, which is a couple of college students want to prove their dominance over mankind by killing somebody. Murder is, or should be, an art. 
not one of the seven lively, perhaps, but an art nevertheless. And as such, the privilege of committing it should be reserved for those few who are really superior individuals. And the victims, inferior beings whose lives are unimportant anyway. Obviously. But in that one, there was like the dominant. And then um, in Cold Blood, and in that one, there was like the dominant uh, killer. Yeah. And then you got Columbine, and now we've got Billy and Stu. I would like to spend a moment of praise of the actual Ghostface Killer costume. Mm. In the original script, it was just described as a white mask, really not giving any thought to what would be on the rest of them. No. When you're actually making a movie, they had to say, well, you, they're going to recognize the killer by everything else. Right. So we need like a full outfit. A friend of mine, Sumo Dan, thought that the mask was modeled after Edward Munch's The Scream. Yep, that's not true. Which would make sense because they kind of resemble each other. Yeah, totally. But the film Scream was originally called Scary Scary Movie. Scary Movie. Right? Until like halfway through production. The title Scary Movie then went on to be used by Dimension for the series of parodies of at first scream do you like scary movies mm-hmm. what's your favorite oh i know um kazam you know the one where shack plays a genie that's not a horror movie <laughs> well you haven't seen shack act but the fact is they were scouting locations and one of the producers found the mask just whoever lived at that place owned it it was put out by a company called fun time small mom and pop party store really yes and I love that. I, I think that they probably never even gave it a name. They probably just said, like, oh, uh, a film company called. They want to use the J-14. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. But when they called up the store and said we'd like because they found the mask and found packaging and realized it was this mom-and-pop store. And they called it up, and the guy said, you want to use it in a movie? Well, sure, just make sure you credit, you know, mom and pop's whatever store, like the name of the store in the credits. Well, That's all he required. Cob. That's right. So at the end of the sc- at darned. the end of the scream credits, you can see the yeah. the credit given where credit is due, but this, you know, it's like, oh, this guy could be a millionaire. Well, isn't he? Because then the scream costume, which at the time was called Father Death, if you look closely, Oh. Which in the commentary they say was written that way to keep um, a little suspicion on the dad oh, as like a sure. little subtle thing. Yeah, he was a red herring. Yeah. So it wasn't like this impossible costume that the killers can contrive themselves with um, uncanny sewing ability like Spider-Man. And then once the stab movies took off, uh, they became even more common. So the idea of, of copycat killers getting their hands on these stab outfits um, was just totally believable. Yeah. And speaking of their believability, as a Halloween costume, yeah, it's really up there because as you simulate something scary, if you try to simulate Freddy Krueger, you better have a team of special effects artists working sure. on you. Or you just get a rubber mask and it looks okay. It's like, you look like Freddy Krueger with a rubbery face. Yeah. Or I guess M- Michael Myers can be the same way sure. as the Scream outfit, which is all you have to do is get the Scream outfit which is a rubber mask and a cloth outfit. Yeah. And you look... And put on your black boots. Put on your black boots that everybody seems to have yeah. to keep everyone a suspect. Right. Bam! You look just like the movie. Matthew did Ghostface a couple years ago, and just yeah. looking over, he kept the mask on pretty much all night, 
And we went around, like we went to a party, we did all and kinds of stuff. It was spooky. I think you were probably, I maybe you were there that year. Yeah. I was Sean Connery. I knew it was him. Yes, you were. I was Annie Wilkes. Yes. But just looking over it, it was it was eerie. It is eerie. It was like because something stepped out of your favorite horror movie. Yeah, because it doesn't look like a so-so Wolfman or a discount Dracula. No, it's an exacto ghost face. It's an exacto ghost face that you don't even really have to be that tall for. No. I, I wouldn't say. I don't think so. Unlike... Nobody's um, that hulking. Some people might be like a bit of a short Jason. Yeah. Or, yeah, I think Michael and Jason have a better effect if you're doing the costume. If you're, if you're tall, broad-shouldered, stocky just, guy. Any old guy can go and get themselves an exact replica of the movie and have it be completely effective. Yeah, uh, that's pretty spooky. Yeah, so there is uh, a few variations on it, but there's nothing like the classic. There yeah, is, I've seen the Scarecrow variation. Scarecrow, that one confused me the most. It's interesting. And then there's the blood pump version. Yeah. Where there's a second layer over the face and you can pump blood from the top and then I guess it'll pool at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. And recycle. Some kind of recycling situation. Yeah. Which is fun. It's cool. And then you There's can... glow-in-the-dark ones. That's good. When I worked at a Halloween store, I would sometimes sell items based on its ability to be seen at night. Oh, yeah. Because let's be practical. You don't want to get hit by a car. Yeah. But you do want to sneak through bushes and murder people. I mean, not really, but you know, you want to look like the kind of person you, you would because like you're dressed can, as a killer. But cross at the light, kids. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what you're dressed as. I have been called the master of suspense, but nothing is more horrifying than talking or texting in the middle of a movie. Please do not text during the movie because it makes everyone psycho. Coming out in 96 when it did, it's great to go back and, and look at it and look at part four, which just came out and yeah. the stops it made in between insofar as how cell phones have integrated themselves <laughs> into our lives. Yeah. Which the killer used a cell phone to make the calls from outside the house. I want to see who I'm looking at uh-huh. kind of stuff. What were you doing with a cellular telephone, son? Exactly. It was like a smoking gun. Yeah. The boyfriend is like hugging Nev Campbell and then a cell phone oh. drops out and of his pocket. she away. And then it kind of condemned him for a little bit. Then in part two, more people have cell phones. Yeah, yeah. There's pretty prevalent and then cell in part phone three, use in part two. There's a lot of people with cell phones, but it's L.A. Yeah. L.A., everyone's got cell it's phones. Hollywood. And the internet's coming a little more into play. And instant messaging mm-hmm. to the point that the audience needs it explained to them. The fact that cell phones can store phone calls mm-hmm. in its memory is, is, is kind of a thing. But then... Oh, you're talking about the joke where she's like, uh, do you have her number in your memory? And he, Dewey he tr- looks up. To think real he's hard. thinking she goes, phone no, memory? Your phone memory. Yeah, yeah. I love that joke. Because phones have memory. Which is, you know what? I didn't. I still had a pager, like, through all three of the screams. Whoa, At Marshall, the time. Whoa. <laughs> all right. I, I didn't get a cell phone until uh, 02. So. I had a cell phone when I was 16, but. Only because my mom wanted me to have it for when I was driving out. But in fact, I might not have really gotten one until I was 17 and actually had a car. I don't remember. But then by part four, you know, there's... Smartphones. There's smartphones. Nobody doesn't have a phone. It would have they're, been they're anomalous and weird for them not to acknowledge that. You know, they they just had to lean into it. Oh, you yeah. Know, because everyone has a phone well, by just, 2011. They, they kicked it up to uh, like live streaming. Yeah. And things like that. When the news broke that two of their classmates were killed, everyone's phone goes off mm-hmm. at once in the class. Yeah. So the days of 
being a suspect because you've got a cellular telephone. Right. Back in 96, that's just gone. Yep. Hello, Sydney. What do you want? It's time, girlfriend. Someone is taking their love of sequels one step too far. Hi, Gail Weathers, author of the Woodsboro Murders. Can't wait to see the movie. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? It's him. Spring 2. What's your favorite scary movie? Showgirls. Absolutely frightening. So part two came out pretty darn quickly. I think I already mentioned it came out less than a year after part one came out. It takes place at the college. Yeah, it's supposed to be two years after the events of the first film. Sydney's at college and Randy, the uh, survivor and movie aficionado, Uh is also at the same college. Yes. And then because there's murders at the college, here comes Gail Weathers and to report on it. And, and Dewey's Dewey, working at the college to... No, he just shows up. Number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate. More blood, more gore. Carnage, candy. Your core audience just expects it. And number three, if you want your sequel to become a franchise, never, ever... How do we find the killer, Randy? That's what I want to know. Oh, let's look at the suspects. I love Scream 2. I think it's really, really fun. I love the way it ends. I think... Spoiler alert, if you've never seen it, the two killers end up being Debbie Salt, played by Laurie Metcalf. She's a quote-unquote reporter, when really she's actually Billy Loomis's mother. The killer from the first one. Uh-huh. The dominant killer from the first yeah, one. Yeah, his mother. Come back Flanked for by Mickey, the freaky Tarantino film student, played by... Tim Oliphant. Yeah, who's fantastic. So it's two... He is really good, and... Casting Laurie Metcalf is just enough of a recognizable face and name to have a small part as the snarky reporter and not have turned out to be the killer. Because you got to be careful. You can't cast too big and you can't be like, hey, isn't that janitor being played by somebody way too important to play a janitor? Right. Oh, he must be the killer. So you can't go too big, but you can't go too small or it's like, so who's the killer? Some rando. Yeah. So you got to get that great sweet spot, which I think Laurie Metcalf... Perfectly filled. I agree with you. And I love her excellent puppetry of her sidekick. Mickey is living in his own little movie where he thinks he's going to be this superstar. Like, he's like, I want to get caught. I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be. And then she's like, no, all right. Shh. This is about me. Okay. I just used you. Yeah. Which I think is brilliant. It's lovely because he's got this whole, you know, in his mind, it's all about him. And it's just not. (laughs) In, In most of the sequels, the times there are duels. There's the dominant who then just kills the... Exactly. Did we settle on a word for the... I said subservient. You seem to nod. That works for me. The secondary. The secondary. The sidekick. Yes. What do you know about trilogies? Anyone, including the main character, can die. This means you, Sid. Scream 3. So Scream 3 was released in February of 2000. So it wasn't a December movie this time. This one takes place in Hollywood. Hollywood, the city of magic, where some find Aladdin's lamp and all their dreams come true, while others pursue the will of the wisp, call success all in vain. Right off the bat, I'm not crazy about Scream 3. No one is. I, I really like it. It's got good scenes and good parts. One of the better parts of the movie is Parker Posey is oh. playing Gail Weathers in, by then they're Stab. up to like step Three or four? Yeah. Yeah. They have a great back and forth. They don't particularly like each other very much, but through some kind of convoluted logic, 
the Parker Posey character thinks her safest bet is to stick with the Gail Weathers character. So you get them as sort of like a Nancy <laughs> Drew kind of yeah. duo. Yeah. Trying to solve things together. Basically, Parker Posey's character, who's an actress playing Gail Weathers, believes that if mm. she's close by Gail Weathers and the killer wants to kill Gail, she'll kill the real Gail and not her. I think most of the great fun parts of part three come in their dynamic. Yes. Between the and two Parker Posey in general. Oh, yeah. Hey, are you... No. But you look just... Like her? I've been hearing it all my life. It's uncanny. I was up for Princess Leia. I was this close. So who gets it? The one who sleeps with George Lucas. It's a kooky movie. It, it is a kooky movie. And the movie. tone is a little different from the other, so I can understand. And horror movies do have a tendency to get kooky as their sequels go on. Yeah. And I guess this is just no exception. All right, you bastard. Let's see who you really are. Max, cut! Shannon, usually I say cut. A monkey, Wes? I mean, Jesus, you guys aren't even trying anymore, are you? I'm not even going to reveal who the killer was. And I'm not even going to reveal what his motivation was. Why? It's too dumb. I just want to move on. I don't think it's dumb. Oh my God, it's dumb. I like it. I think it's really cool. I'm sorry, I know that's unpopular. Everyone hates Scream 3, but if you can just give yourself over to it a little bit. I'm just going to let you describe it until you run out of steam. And stop caring. I don't not care, but it's. I realize this is a fight you I'm not going to win. Fall asleep. I'm not going to fall asleep. Talking about I, it out loud. Okay, but you know, much like other trilogies, this one is about the past coming back and what you thought you knew you didn't know. And yes, it's convoluted, but there are some really fun scenes in Scream Three, and I'll take what I can get. But let's move on to something I loved even more than Scream Three. Scream 4? Scream 4. Scream 4. In 2011, we got Scream 4, and you and I, we were going to go to the premiere as seat fillers. We sure were. I do remember. I raced and raced to get to Hollywood and meet you in line, and the line stretched around the block. To to the Chinese theater. We didn't get in. We didn't get in. They were full up. They were all full up, and then you and I went to California Pizza Kitchen. We did! Where I took your photo, and that is the picture that comes up when you call me. Oh, that's fun. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, that was disappointing. I did wind up going to see... I saw it at the Arclight. Well, then, you and I got together like a week later. We were like, oh, we didn't get in. But you know what? You and I will... will... This is before we even had the podcast by (sighs) over a year. It's crazy. Uh, What did we even do with our time? I don't know. And then um, we decided to get together uh, like a week later. So a week later, we, we do... But it turned out you'd seen it twice or three times? I can't remember. Definitely twice. Definitely twice. It was a number that surprised me. Did I saw that movie 20 goddamn times! Uh, four was delightful. Yeah. Sydney is on a, like a book tour. She returns to her hometown, and the murders start back up again. Um, she's visiting her cousin, She's visiting Jill. her cousin. Okay. Spoilers ahead. Ahoy! Which is... The killer turns out to be a duo again, one being a movie geek. So we've done that before. Unless you're looking at the character as another Randy, in which case Randy was a pretty prime suspect in part one, but so was everybody else. And then movie geek was... I can see how he could sort of be the Randy, kind of, but just a little more charismatic. At the end, they're like, we're redoing it. Who survives at the end? Sydney and Randy. Right. And then our stand-in for Sydney goes, no, single survivor's better. Stab. 
So the brains behind the operation, the dominant one, the real force behind it all has been Sydney's cousin. Yeah. Which turned out her half brother was pretty psychotic. So now we got Sydney's cousin who um, wants to be famous and was enough of a surprise for me because in the language of films, once you got to Indiana Jones part four, you can see they were sort of trying to prime Shia LaBeouf to maybe take over. Mm -hmm. And other series have done that. You bring in the new blood, you pass it off. Then you got this guy for a couple movies. They're not as good, but what are you going to do? Yeah. So it was totally in the back of everyone's head. Oh, what was the actress? Um, Emma Roberts. Yeah. Emma Roberts. She's a swell looker. I bet she's going to be the star of Scream 5 and 6. Right. No. No. Because <laughs> it turns out she's a nice little crazy killer. Yeah. She says she's tired of Sydney having the spotlight. And yeah. she's tired of taking a backseat to this person in her family. And she says, what am I supposed to do? Go to college? Get, Work? Yeah. And uh, I don't need friends. I need fans. Which is so 2011. I can't even. It's so 2011, and just specifically, not 96. Right. 96 was that era in between the real world and the Osbournes, you know, where reality television wasn't even a term yet. Yeah. There wasn't enough of it to really call it something. Blind date hadn't even started yet. You know, Mm. at the time, there was just, if the dating shows. They would just sit and talk about how their dates went. Right. But the idea of like actually following them with cameras. Yeah. Or following a family with cameras was just not a thing. Right. Versus in 2011. By 2011. Forget it. It's just the name of the game. Yeah. A good slasher is, I think, really great at encapsulating a a time period, a a group of teenagers, a A, a a generation. Yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. As opposed to one who slashes. Was, yes, yes. Not not one who slashes, but a good slasher film. Really kind of uh, she puts a, holds a mirror up to, I mean, of course, any great horror movie is holding up a mirror to society in some way, whether it's on a, an interpersonal level or a grander societal level or whatever. But I think Scream in 96 did a great job of, of that time frame, or at least of even launching a new type of horror fan, you know, the, the meta thing. In 2011 was such a reflection of what sniveling, selfish brats the next the, generation the millennials can be. You know, if, I mean, I guess I'm kind of considered a millennial, but or maybe the, the next one, I forget what they're calling them. As opposed to when Henry Winkler would talk about the callousness of the youth of 96. Yeah. For every generation gets looked back upon. Of course. As, um, as They're ruining as everything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure even the greatest generation caught some flack by whoever came before them. Yeah. Are certain words creeping into his conversation? Words like, like swell. <laughs> ah, and so's your old man. <laughs> Since you brought up um, the principal in the first film. Yeah. You know, he's got those two kids in his office and he's like threatening them and go and all they did was put on masks and run down the hallway and and, you know play off of what was going on and he calls them heartless desensitized little shits yeah but in 2011 in scream 4 all of the teenage characters to some degree some of whom are even like filming their everyday lives but all of them are super smart and savvy and the killers are wildly manipulative and like way too smart about it i just mean like there is a certain innocence to, um, in retrospect, to okay. the 96, to Scream, to those characters, versus the 2011. It's so harsh, and everybody's really jaded. As killers in this fictional film, and maybe the kids of today have gotten 
simultaneously smarter and lazier. Wow. Yeah. You just said a mouthful. I think you're right. Boom. Um, Take that, young listeners. Cut. Print. Because you know what? We can't really depend much on older generations to uh, get podcasts. But the irony is that Jill, the Emma Roberts character, as much as she says, I don't want to work for, I just want to be a celebrity. How do you think people become famous anymore? You don't have to achieve anything. You just got to have fucked up shit happen to you. But she puts... A pretty intense amount of effort into crafting this whole thing. And I mean, sure. it's almost like, Which, why don't you put those energies elsewhere? You might uh, have a fulfilling life and career doing something that you might feel good about. That doesn't involve cutting your face up. Yeah. Slamming yourself into a coffee table. Ha- having Stabbing um, yourself. Gotten rid of her, her cohort. It's then up to her to rough herself up. In a pretty great scene. That scene is incredible. I remember watching that the first time and screaming with yeah. laughter because it was the most ridiculous she, thing I'd seen in a while. She stabs herself in the shoulder by like holding it up to um oh. up to a wall and just kind of running oh. into it. She pulls her own hair out. And she's such a like a pretty little thing, who then vaults onto a coffee table and just smashes through it. The movie doesn't end there. But man, wouldn't that have been something? I really do kind of love, and I the the addendum thereafter is all right. Takes place out well scene. by then. She's really because it was just the like surprise. I'm the killer, and you're like okay. And in other even scream movies, it doesn't last much longer after that. No. It's like surprise. I'm the killer. Fight, fight, fight. Credits. Yeah. This was surprise. I'm the killer. I'm gonna go crazy now. And the next time you see me. I'm just going to be a straight-up villain. Yeah. And we check back in with her in the hospital where her face is all cut up and she's no longer, you know, you just look at her in the beginning and you go, "Eh, she kind of does look like her Aunt Julia Roberts. Yeah. But by the end, you're like, psycho killer. She's a monster. Yeah. Yeah. And she gets off like another good scene of being that monster before the end. Just hurting, hurting Sydney. Mm. Just cat fight. Something that was in part one and two and was kind of changed for three and then not at all in four was the awesome Nick Cave song, Red Right Hand. Oh. Really good. In Halloween staple for me now. Oh, completely. For me and everybody else. On a gathering storm comes a tall handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand. It's used twice in part one. Shows up again in part two as the film within a film, Stab, seems to be using it as its theme song. Amazing. Then in part three, there's another version of it, which is also Nick Cave, but it seems to be describing the movie is just like... Where does it play? In the beginning, I think. And it's just talking about like, the city down below with the angels and the lights. That's right. That's and, right. And I'm like, I don't remember these lyrics. It seems to be describing Los Angeles yeah, and what's happening very in the weird. scene. I looked it up and I'm like, no, it's, I thought like they just got another, like a sound alike or something, but it's Nick Cave again. And then in part four, they show the movie Stab 
again, the, the first one, as all the kids are watching it in, in a barn and having yeah. a real hoot. At which Stabathon. you get to see it from people not knowing what to expect from the film to it being such a like a cult classic, everyone's just shouting dialogue back at the screen. If you notice, the song is now missing from the movie. It's, Interesting. Yeah, because for whatever reason, they didn't get it for part four. Wow. There is a scene where, which Culkin is it? Rory. Rory Culkin mm-hmm. has a bloody right hand. Yeah. And kind of smacks it against. Yeah. Against the um, window. Against yeah. the window. Oh, you look at you picking into that and finding some gems. Sure. Well, once it was over, I was like, where was Red Right Hand? His shadow is cast wherever he stands. Stacks a green paper in his red right hand. Do a wrap up. Gosh. Do you want a fistful of popcorn for you? I mean, no thanks. I there goes that popcorn. Crunch. It was nearly as daunting for me the idea of doing a podcast on the Scream franchise as the idea of doing a podcast on Halloween because you know Halloween's my favorite scary movie. I know Scream, the whole franchise, really well. Yeah, I'm especially one and. I do love four an awful. It was on my phone for a while, and I just watched it all the time. And that's why we're on episode twenty-eight, and only now getting to it. Yeah. Because it's a big movie for you and for me, and I forgot to mention in the podcast proper the commentary for Scream. Yeah. With Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven, changed my life. Yeah. I never thought of myself as being able to write horror, previous to that, and the commentary presented. Two intelligent people speaking intelligently about horror and breaking it down in a way that I could really grab onto. And then, hey, check out my IMDb page. You'll see uh, two credits. One is a PA, one is a writer. And the writer was for a horror movie. Yeah. The commentary, I'm not alone in my opinion on the quality of the Scream commentary because, and I don't think I've ever shown you this. (gasps) Hold on, sorry. It was available on VHS. (gasps) Oh my God. It came as part of a two-pack with the uh, the widescreen version wow. of Scream. I had originally heard the commentary on a friend's Laserdisc, but I myself did not own a Laserdisc player. But didn't matter, Ugh. because the Scream commentary was so well-regarded that it got released on VHS, which I've never... I've heard that other films did it, but... I'd never heard of this I've never in my before. life ever seen a commentary released on VHS. As a medium, it's just not something that got done. Wow. Yeah, exactly. That's really cool. You have never shown me that. That's awesome. For every time you've ever been in this room, it was in that corner. Makes me wonder what else you're hiding from me, Hicks. Skeletons. Jesus. Um, In my closet. But yes, you're right. Both of them are incredibly well-spoken. It's inspirational, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, you grow up as a kid, or at least I did, and if you're listening to this podcast, you probably did too. I was a a young man. Or a young man. I mean, I don't mean Scream particularly. I mean just, like, horror in general. You grow up, you watch it, you love it. You have this weird affinity for it. Other people you know think it's weird. At least for me, I had a couple friends who I could talk to about it. But everybody else, like, I knew they'd just think it was weird. They didn't have the kind of passion I did. But you're kind of alone in that. And everybody's journey's different. But for a while, at least. For a while, you're kind of alone in your You're kind of alone in it. And then you see someone in the industry you've so you come upon something whether it's a commentary or whatever 
that opens the floodgates for you to go like, oh, oh, it actually makes sense to talk about this and love it and think it's cool and interesting and to have real things to say about it. And, oh, you know, and it's just the hills are alive. That's, you know, it's your moment watching this commentary. And I think we've all had that moment at some point. And that's point. how Brony started. Oh, God. One Brony talking to another. And then it's like, you too? Yeah. I wonder if there's anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um, yeah. So, Scream. A game changer for me. A game changer for the industry. Yes. Whose uh, effects have been either tapered off or have sewn themselves into the industry to a point that they really can't be removed. Nope. And for those of us who love a good horror movie, they've given us uh, four movies, two really good ones. Two really good ones. One okay one. And I'll, I'll leave you to figure out for yourself if that okay one is part two or part three. Uh, Kat and I have some, uh, <laughs> some differing opinions. And don't just think that just because you, you saw it back in 96, you're all done with Scream. It holds up. And, and if you're it's, me... It's, it's worthy of uh, viewings well into this new millennium of ours. And if you're me and you need to take a nap, you put that on. And it works like a charm every time. That and Halloween are my two Is that two a compliment? Films. No, no, no. I just it puts know you them... to sleep? No, it doesn't. I just know them so well that the pace and rhythm of those films are comforting. And they're very... It's a very um, plodding kind of... Plodding with a D. Kind of... Um, Still not a compliment. No, no, no. I, I mean, the tempo, it's very, it's soothing to me. I don't See, know why. And if you're me and you're uh, cleaning out a junk drawer or a box in the closet, you put on the commentary. And, and I also want to point out that just like Sydney takes her nap in the first film, she falls asleep on the couch and wakes up and it's dark out and she yeah. looks at the clock and, oh, I fell asleep. I would like to note that when we began recording this podcast, yeah. the sun was up and now it's down. And I think that's a beautiful thing. All right. Well, if you look out that window, perhaps you can uh, warn us to beware the moon. Beware. Beware.